Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. In today's podcast, I visit with Dick Clark, the CEO of the Portland Clinic. The Portland Clinic is a 100-year-old business that now employs about 500 employees. Way back in 1921, the Portland Clinic was an innovator. Back then, Oregonians that needed medical attention received it from a solo practitioner, likely a generalist, either at home or in the hospital. The Portland Clinic offered a new option when it became Oregon's first multidiscipline medical clinic. During our conversation, Dick shares his insights on communication, mentorship, and leadership. As a lifelong learner and avid reader with 40 years of work experience, Dick has a lot of wisdom to share. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with Dick Clark of the Portland Clinic. Dick Clark, welcome to Success at Last. We're excited to have you. Thanks, Jared. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Absolutely. Well, we're going to cover a lot of wonderful topics today. I presume we're going to talk a little bit about leadership. We're going to talk about mentorship and communication, topics that I don't think any of us can ever know enough about. I'm excited to hear about those experiences, but I'd love to start these conversations with perspective. Who are you and what are some of the decisions and experiences that led you to where you are today at the Portland Clinic? Well, thank you, Jared. I'm a native Oregonian. I grew up and was raised in North Portland, went to high school in Portland and didn't travel that far from home, went to Oregon State University, where I earned a degree in technical journalism and a minor in natural resource conservation in the early 80s. And so I was uh, set to be looking for a job in the forest products industry and was excited about that. But of course, in the early 80s, that industry collapsed and I had to follow my second love and that was journalism and became a newspaper editor and really enjoyed that. And from there, I uh, went into special events and then into healthcare. And I've had a varied career, varied experiences, but I've enjoyed every industry. Interesting. There's a topic that I, I love it, it covered in the book, Range, where you have kind of these disparate experiences and insights that all of a sudden come together to create a really unique and powerful perspective. That background that you just described probably cohesively makes a lot more sense in the driver's seat than it does, you know, sitting back and, and observing it from, from a third-party perspective. I guess, how have some of those experiences in other industries and from an academic training perspective really equipped you to thrive within healthcare and the leadership role that you're in today? Well, I've always been interested in healthcare ever since I was a child, and I visited my grandfather in Mount Angel, Oregon, at a very progressive nursing home for that time called the Benedictine Nursing Center. So I really grew up on weekends there, <clears throat> observing the care for elderly, and quite frankly, helping some of the staff uh, fold towels and deliver meals. And so it was with that experience of servant leadership in a healthcare setting 
that really were some of my earliest memories in, in, in doing service. And so with that tucked away, I went on to my formal education to become a communicator. And I think communication is a key to a successful career. Once again, I'm a lifelong Portlander, and I really love this city, and I wanted to take the experiences of service, of communication, and apply them. And so after the the career in newspapers in the late 80s, I uh, was looking at the one ads one morning on a Sunday morning, and I saw that the Portland Rose Festival was looking for a PR director. I grew up with the Rose Festival as well, and I thought, wow, I didn't even know they had a professional staff, which they did. And so I joined that team and about five years later, served as the executive director for 10 years. So I had a total career of 15 years with the Rose Festival. And it was during that time I applied my communication skills along with all my newspaper experience of working with different people from all different sorts of life. And the Rose Festival really did that. And organizationally, there are 5,000 volunteers. So it was a task that needed to be done every June. So deadlines, once again, like newspapers. And the last but not least, as I wanted to move into healthcare, I took my experience from my childhood at the nursing home. I took my, my concept of organization and communication and packaged it all together, went to work at Providence Health and Services. And so I really feel like, like you said, everything is all interconnected, it's integrated, and you just try to knit that together to advance yourself for the benefit of your family as well as the community. I agree with you more how important communication is, but it does seem to be at times something that everyone generally takes for granted. You know, I've never heard about a company that does too good of a job communicating or somebody that was too effective at communicating. But from a technical perspective, there aren't a lot of people that really study it, pursue it, and intentionally refine it and get better at it. I guess, what would be some observations that, that you have about communications that insights that you have that maybe others don't have, or, or what don't I know about effective communication that I should? I think uh, we all, as business leaders, understand that communication is really a two-way street, and it starts with listening before talking. And so in my sense, I was a reporter, and I was, in essence, paid to ask questions. But when you ask a question, you have to listen for the response. And so once again, I think that in any conversation, you should listen before you talk and gain a perspective of where that person is coming from. And then when you do talk, I think that you have to, and, and write, for, whether you write or talk, you have to be honest and straightforward and succinct. And we're bombarded with so many messages in the world today from social media, radio, TV, wherever. I think being brief and clear and honest is really a key. And my technical training as a journalist really taught me to write and sometimes speak in what I call as an inverted pyramid style, which means you start with the most important information first and you lead with that. And after a while, you don't have to say anything more because everything else is hopefully just emphasizing what you said at first. So that's a way that I've learned to communicate both professionally and personally. It's worked out well. But as you mentioned, Jared, it is a work in progress. 
because I succeed in communication and I also fail in communication. I have to admit that when when we I tossed out that question, I immediately thought about what I would be saying. And you said, start with listening. And I, you know, I was like, wow, all right, I guessed wrong and probably an opportunity for me to get better in my own communication. Well, so let's play on that a little bit more. You know, as the CEO and the leader of the Portland Clinic, there's a bunch of different stakeholders that you're in relationship with, patients, employees, the partners or medical providers, insurance providers, and probably some others that I'm, that I'm overlooking. What does listening look like across those different audiences? And I guess, how do you sometimes navigate the inevitable competing interests when you've got different different groups that have different interests and you're trying to create alignment across a particular topic or a particular decision? I think there are a few things there. And you have to be uh, nimble, obviously, because you're moving from topic to topic, maybe every five minutes, maybe every half an hour. And so uh, practicing an ability to compartmentalize so that when you're listening or talking about a topic, you're not necessarily in the back of your mind thinking about the last conversation you had and trying to resolve that problem. So I'm a big believer that you have to be present in a conversation. You have to be an active listener and communicator. And if you have a serious issue, which is also on your desk, if you can, put that in a jar and put it on the shelf while you're listening or talking about the current subject. And if you can't do that, you should break off the communication that you're in and go back to that topic if it's swamping you so much. And so once again, being nimble, compartmentalizing. And then I think a lot of the communication comes down to nonverbal communication, certainly, where if you're in the room with someone or on Zoom, And you can see hand gestures, facial expressions, whether they be smiles or frowns, eye contact. I'm a big believer in eye contact, where ideally the person is looking you in the eye because you can kind of really see if they're speaking the truth or if they're trying to rationalize something. And that's really important because I think communication, once again, has to be honest to be effective. So if you can pick out you know, some things that a person's saying or not saying, their mood, their tone of their voice, all of these things are, I'll say, skills that make for a a more effective communicator. And then I would say also that you have to know your audience. A lot of my communication is to larger groups where I have to say, what's the greater good want? What's the, the mass of people want as opposed to that specific person? Because if I'm catering my communication to just one or two people, but I'm trying to give the message out to 50 or 100 people, that's not going to work. I need to probably just go to those one or two people and have a specific conversation as opposed to trying to broadcast it to all my employees. So it's constantly judging your audience and what's going to be the most effective way to communicate. And then last but not least, I would say, what do you want them to take away? So at the conclusion of a conversation, it's probably good to summarize whatever you led with and what you would ask them. Maybe there is an ask what you would like them to communicate with others. Take a kind of a selfish question now. It feels like the last year and a half with 
the pandemic, there's been the persistence of change, the you know, predictability of unpredictability. You know, for us, we were acclimated to working predominantly in, in one office. And so there was that serendipitous hallway conversation or catch up or the, the break room conversation or catch up. And now we're in this virtual environment and the persistence of change continues. Generally, humans prefer less change, not more of it. I'm curious if, if there are any nuances to communicating now in kind of the high stakes environment where there's a persistence of change. We're more virtual now than we have been historically, maybe less so. And I guess a medical setting, it doesn't virtualize quite as well. But any any nuances you think to the communicating in that sort of an environment versus a traditional one, or is it same as it always is? Well, it's radically changed for all of us, I think. Obviously, at first, we weren't able to even be in the same room with each other. And if we were, we'd have to wear masks. And you weren't able to see but the people's eyes and not their facial expressions, not the smiles, whether those be frowns or smiles. And so we've all had to adjust to that. I think we've also had to adjust to people's fatigue and just being overwhelmed with circumstances. And we could be talking to a person on a very routine topic, and all of a sudden we see a certain level of stress come over. And so I think we have to judge where is a person at today? Are they able to have this conversation now? Or do they need to be doing something else, either personally or professionally, in that moment? And I I think we have to understand that nuance, that psychology, because all of us are under so much stress. I think Zoom and other ways of visually communicating have helped be a supplement, but it's not an end result because I think it brings its own sense of fatigue where you're looking at a computer screen all the time and all of a sudden it becomes a very one-dimensional experience. So I think we have to find a balance between all of this. And as, as COVID continues to persist in Oregon, I think we need to say, well, what can we do by phone? What can we do via Zoom? Can we meet outside with someone safely? Can we meet inside safely? But don't pick just one form of communication to be your sole source. Pick the one that's going to be most effective for whatever the topic and the person can do. So Dick, over the last 40 years, you've had all kinds of experiences. And ultimately, that's led you to be quite passionate and and quite gifted at leadership. So I just wanted to transition from communication to leadership. Talk to me about your passion, your interest in exploring and learning and developing in leadership. Well, I try to be a leader by example, where as much as I'm a communicator, it's my actions that demonstrate my leadership. And so I feel like I want to always exemplify being a servant leader, and a servant leader gets their hands dirty and is involved in a certain amount of labor, either in time or physical exertion that inspires others. And so I've been involved with a lot of activities, both as a volunteer and as a staff member here, where I don't necessarily want to be seen just as the CEO. I want to be seen as one of the colleagues in the trenches. And sometimes that's required me to get a snow shovel out on days in which we've had snow and we need to have one of our clinics open. Sometimes it's involved me just helping a line of employees carrying boxes. 
sometimes it's involved me just in offering empathy to someone that's had a personal tragedy. And I think that all of these things uh, show that you're accessible and that your behavior is such that you would like other people to model it as well. And so I believe that's a, a very important thing. And the other very important thing in leadership is integrity and honesty and always speaking the truth, even when it's not what some people want to hear, because you are being really forthright and honest with people and not sugarcoating things. Certainly you need to be appropriate in how you deliver any any type of news, but it is just trying to be real with people because I think people appreciate that as opposed to the sense that you're hiding something from them. If you go to the bookstore, you type in leadership into Amazon, you're overwhelmed with thousands and thousands of titles. There's a lot of a lot of opinions when it comes to leadership, a lot of classes and, and seminars that you could you could attend. I'm curious if you've encountered ideas or consist, consistently encounter ideas about leadership that, that you think is actually bad advice. Do you have any ideas that you've encountered, recommendations that you've heard that you think are off the mark? Yes, I have. I've read a lot of leadership books. I, I almost exclusively read nonfiction and most of the nonfiction I read are biographies on presidents as well as business leaders that I admire. But obviously, there are some folks that I would say, if they're honest with themselves and, and with you, they're admitting their mistakes. And so there are some folks that really want to know every detail of how their business operates because they want to make it high performing. And I would say that that's impossible to really be so knowledgeable about your company that you know exactly how to do every job and that you can replace anyone by yourself. Because first of all, you're going to exhaust yourself. It's not sustainable. You're going to be a micromanager. And quite frankly, you're not going to keep the best people because the best people want to be empowered. They want to be motivated. They want to be appreciated. But ideally, you have subject matter experts in various parts of your company so that you don't have to do it all. And I, I've read some books where people have admitted that as a mistake. They wear themselves out. And I try to, over my 40 years of leadership, really try to hire people who are smarter than me, give them their resources that they need, and let them do their job, and thank them at the end. Love hearing that you're, a, you're an avid reader. I'd like to ask you a question, but we'll keep it apolitical. Like if you like to read about presidents and different leaders, their political beliefs and programs aside, just from a leadership perspective, are there any men or women throughout history, books that you've read where you're just like, ah, that person I think was a pretty gifted leader? Well, I always like to reflect on Abraham Lincoln. Doris Kearns Goodwin's book on Team of Rivals, I think was a classic where after he was elected, he selected for his cabinet a lot of the men at that time who ran against him and put together this group that could be considered a boiling pot. But he wanted to hear differences of opinions, and that group came to really respect him. And obviously, the results were incredible for the United States. And so I'm a big admirer of him. Another president that had a different tone, a different style than Abraham Lincoln 
but I think was uh, very good for our times was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And certainly we all know about his leadership during the depression and the economic dark times. And then during World War II, I think that what he was able to masterfully do on a big scale with vision is absolutely incredible too. Yeah, that's a, that's an incredibly fun and insightful genre of books to just discover all those things that you might have missed during your high school history class. We'll transition the conversation to mentorship, but to do so, I kind of wanted to ask you a leadership question. I guess as you kind of reflect upon the leaders, whether it was teachers or coaches or bosses, are there leaders that kind of have influenced who you are today or how you lead today? I have many, many mentors and leaders that have influenced me. My uh, father passed away when I was three years old. My mom didn't remarry, which was her choice. But I really needed male and primarily male leaders at the time to help mentor me. And these came from uh, Boy Scouts, which I was active in. And I earned my Eagle rank, which I'm very proud of. And, and, it's, and I consider it still a great program. In high school, I went to an all-male high school, Central Catholic in Southeast Portland. It was all-male at that time, is now co-ed, fantastic high school. There were a lot of coaches there and a lot of teachers who really provided modeling for me, especially when you're in those really formative teenage years. And then throughout my whole career, I've always sought leaders that I would say a wise person told me once, form a kitchen cabinet. Not a cabinet that ever meets, but that you consider in your mind as those people that would sit around the kitchen table with you and advise you and offer points of leadership. And so I mentally have had over my 40 some years of working this kitchen cabinet that I would call a person here or a person there, meet them for coffee, whatever the case may be, and talk to them about some issues I'm wrestling with. And they have given me some wise advice, not preachy, not prescriptive, very personal to me because they cared about me. And I would thank them. Some of them are gone now because most of them were older. But I still look back at those folks as being hugely influential in my career and my life. I love that idea. If that's something that somebody wanted to apply and be intentional with within their own life, Functionally, then they kind of have to go interview and hire for that advisory cabinet, right? So I I guess what would be some considerations as somebody looking for mentorship and maybe trying to, to build this, craft this informal cabinet? What characteristics or traits have you found to be the most meaningful? Well, these people all are friends and or could be new friends. And ideally, these are all people who really care about you and want you to be successful because obviously, other than a cup of coffee, they're not getting anything out of it. And I think you should seek people who are willing to tell you the truth and tell you, no, that is not a good idea. People who are really going to be honest with you, even when you feel like that's not the right advice, because I think you should seek out people who are going to give you a perspective opinion and not just the answer that you want, the yes answer or whatever that is. And I've tried to do this with my staff here, where if I have anyone from any job call me and want to talk or meet, it's a pleasure to meet with them. 
And I try not to have them feel intimidated in the least bit. And I think being a mentor for especially people that are younger than you, but your contemporaries as well, is highly fulfilling and highly engaging and something that you can really say is part of your legacy in the world. You're going to be remembered much more for people that you influence, whether that be children or other business colleagues, than the amount of money that you made in your life. Absolutely. So presumably over the last 40 plus years of career, you went from most of the conversations in the realm of mentorship where you were the mentee, potentially now you're in the, in the seat where you're the mentor more frequently. What are some of the characteristics or traits that good mentors embrace or embody? Well, as I mentioned, I think that they first and foremost have to be honest with you and, and, and be good listeners as well. And I think that they also should have enough mileage under them that they can offer you a perspective where sometimes you think something is a deep crisis that is fatal and you'll never recover from. And ideally, these folks are willing to offer you a story about when they failed and how they recovered from it. And so offering a perspective, I think, is really important for a mentor to be able to do. And then I think a lot of it comes down to encouragement because, you know, sometimes you're looking for someone that will be in your corner that when other people don't understand what you're trying to do, that they can be hopeful, optimistic, encouraging of you. So, you know, it's a fine balance between trying to be real and honest with you and and offer some constructive criticism, but also pump up your tires when needed. I think we all need somebody to pump up our tires from time to time. Yeah, especially, you know, right now the world, world can be a tough place. A lot of us are dealing with a lot of difficult things and some resilience is important, but a tire pumper, I guess we all need one of those. Indeed. So I guess what other thoughts, I guess, are around mentorship? To what extent have you been able to integrate it at all into the Portland Clinic? Is mentorship something that is a formal thing or is it informal or combination of the both? It's both. We have this as part of our leadership development. We have about 500 employees at the Portland Clinic and and a lot of them are just starting their careers. And so what we try to do is be available for them, get them engaged in programs, whether they be within our walls or, or educational programs outside our walls so that they can continue to be a student of their skills that they're trying to develop. We also do a lot of advancements within the company, and we seek employees that want to advance first before we look for external employees. But at the same time, just because they get a title doesn't necessarily mean that they're fully qualified at that particular point to do their job. So I think it's important for us to keep tabs on those folks, to tell them about our expectations, to lead by example, to give them a continued feedback, whether that's formal through evaluations or check-ins. I'm a big believer that rounding is really important with your employees so that you're available to stop by and, and see if they have questions. And these don't need to be uh, pre-scheduled meetings. They can be just things that happen. Sometimes that's the best form of leadership is that a one to three minute conversation that you can have. Obviously, COVID has tempered that a little bit, but ideally we'll get back to that point. And once again, 
for the sustainability of the organization. And, and the Portland Clinic is 100 years old. So I stand on the shoulders of a lot of leaders here. It's a constant theme here to develop the leaders of tomorrow and to be very intentional and not necessarily just let it happen. We have to be really specific and intentional and purposeful with that. Dick, that's pretty impressive. 100-year-old company. There's a short list here in Portland of companies that are 100 plus years old. And so presumably we all benefit from a, a little bit of good luck along the way. But I'm curious, what are some of the other things, the attributes of, of the organization, the cultural nuances that have allowed it to persist for 100 years when so many other clinics have come and gone? I think our doctors, our providers have always been patient focused. So that's another way of saying customer service. Yeah. And we try to be available for people when they need us available. And sometimes that is not just eight to five, but it's 24 seven, especially in healthcare. And whether it's the doctor that's available during that time period or some other type of program where a person can feel comforted that their healthcare is important to the business that they've trusted. And we believe the, the Portland Clinic is a very trustful organization. In fact, one of our themes is the Portland Clinic where relationships matter. You're not just a number. You have a personal relationship with the providers here. We know you. That is very, very key. The other part of this is being any good business, you try to be fiscally responsible. And in healthcare, we've been battered a lot of different ways with rising costs, whether it be on labor or technology or malpractice insurance, property taxes, whatever. You know, so we try to be fiscally balanced so that we can be here tomorrow, that we're not just going to end at the, after 100 years. We want to be here for 200 years. And so being smart business people, because we're locally owned, locally managed, is really a key to us as well. And then last but not least, we want to be a good corporate citizen. The Portland Clinic is in, Portland is in our name. So we owe it to Portland to be a good citizen. And that means being active in philanthropy, active in giving back to the community and volunteerism, active in trying to offer a certain amount of uh, free and uncompensated care so that this community can be a better place. I would be curious to, from your perspective, to kind of look under the hood, metaphorically, to the healthcare industry, hear how the sausage is made. But I'm curious how technology and industry trends are, are changing. What will be some of the bigger changes that the Portland Clinic might need to embrace and integrate over the next three to five years? Well, certainly because of the emergency of COVID, we have embraced a telehealth, which before COVID, we just had done a small smattering of. But because of COVID, about 65% of our business in April of 2020 depended on telehealth. And that was for safety. It was because people were fearful of coming anywhere around other people. And so uh, telehealth became a platform for us to be able to keep in contact with our patients and offer at least some semblance of normal health care. Now, that has decreased not only with the Portland Clinic, but also other medical providers now in the fall or soon to be the fall of 2021. But it'll always have a piece 
And certainly that marries up with people's expectations of being able to get some answers outside the walls of a building, outside the normal eight to five business time. So we have to be really conscious on the balance of how telehealth is delivered. It can't do everything, but it definitely has a role for the future. Kind of linked to that is the immediacy of people that do their own research into their own healthcare. And that's really important. Sometimes it also can be a little bit dangerous because certainly Siri doesn't know everything about health. And so you need to have a balance between what you can research your own and what you can trust a doctor to provide. But I think once again, it comes down to being able to have a conversation with a doctor or provider. And then also with what's happened with COVID for you to own your own healthcare and own your own health. So you're not just depending on someone giving you the answers over here, but you apply those. And we've had to apply those in in this COVID crisis where now you want to wear ideally a mask, you want to social distance, you want to preserve your own health, you have a responsibility. Some people aren't going to do that for you. Interesting. Well, Dick, the one thing that I can pick up for sure is that you have a, a joy for your job. There's an engagement, a twinkle in the eye. And so I guess I wanted to end our conversation on just giving you some runway to talk to me about the favorite parts of your job. Like, What about your job flips the switch and gets you fired up in the morning? Every day I have an opportunity to interact with patients. And while I'm not a provider, sometimes my wife says he's not really a doctor. (laughs) It's your wife's job to keep you humble. It is. And she does a very good job at it. We've been almost married 40 years and she's my better half. That's great. But I would say the interaction with patients and being able to help a person navigate healthcare, even the smartest person still under stress doesn't really know how to fully access healthcare. And so each day I have the opportunity to talk to family members, friends, business colleagues that are trying to find a referral for themselves, for a family member. They just got a bad diagnosis and they just want to talk. And so because I've had almost 20 years of experience in healthcare, I do listen well to them and I try to direct them accordingly. Certainly don't give them any medical advice, but I point them in the direction of people that can. I think that's pretty incredible. Like, just think about over the last 100 years, the number of patients that have been positively impacted by the Portland Clinic and its team. So cheers to you, the team, in the last 100 years and to the next 100. Well, thanks, Jared. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Best of luck to you, and we'll have to rerun it sometime.